This is the part of the program where um, we draw to a conclusion with um, our piece de resistance, namely the B. Kenneth Simon lecture. We've had a full day already, um, and let me thank those of you who've stayed through the whole program, and let me also invite uh, or welcome those of you who have joined us just now. Um, we conclude with this lecture uh, each year, uh, and then we'll conclude afterward with a grand reception upstairs in our Ken and Frida Levy um, roof garden, which we hope you enjoy. Uh, this lecture series uh, is named in honor of the man who endowed it, uh, together with the chair that I'm honored to hold here at Cato. Like so many who came of age during the Depression and served in World War II, the late Ken Simon was a great friend of liberty. Following the war, Ken earned a degree in engineering from Cornell. Then he returned to his native Pittsburgh, where he started a business, raised a family, and in time dedicated himself to furthering the ideas of America's founders that had so animated his own life. With this series of lectures, which is just one example of Ken's philanthropy, we've brought a distinguished uh, group of judges, legal scholars, and practicing attorneys to the podium to discuss and help keep alive these basic constitutional principles. We've covered everything from constitutionalism to property rights, religious liberty, economic liberty, the Ninth Amendment, progressivism, and more, including the very way we interpret and apply our basic law, the subject of today's lecture. Stephen Calabresi is the Clayton J. and Henry R. Barber Professor of Law at Northwestern University. Since graduating from Yale College and the Yale Law School, he's had a distinguished career in the law. He clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia, and before that, for U.S. Court of Appeals Judges Robert Bork and Ralph Winter. From 1985 to 1990, he served the Reagan and Bush One administrations, working in both the Justice Department and the West Wing of the Reagan White House. Professor Calabresi has been a scholar in residence at Harvard Law, a visiting professor at Yale Law School, and since 2010, a visiting professor of political science at Brown University, although his main appointment is at Northwestern Law School. His publications are too numerous to account, but I'll mention one, a well-regarded casebook on the Constitution, co-authored with Professor Michael Stokes, Michael Stokes Paulson, Samuel Bray, and Michael McConnell, the last of whom gave a previous Simon lecture uh, and has a contributor to the uh, Cato Supreme Court review that you picked up on your way in. Steve is also the co-founder of the Federalist Society, which he did when he was a student at Yale Law School, and he has since 1986 served as the chairman of its board of directors. The title of Steve's lecture today is Originalism and Liberty. Please welcome Professor Steve Calabresi.
Thank you very much, Roger, for that gracious introduction. And it is a tremendous pleasure and honor to be able to appear before you tonight to give the Cato Institute's 14th annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture on Constitutional Thought. I have long admired the Cato Institute for its rigorous adherence to principles of liberty because I consider myself to be a libertarian conservative, among other things. And it's an especially great pleasure to speak to you to, on Constitution Day in 2015, because as many of you know, this marks the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta, one of the greatest charters of human liberty the world has ever known. I will discuss the relevance of Magna Carta to liberty in US constitutional law in my remar remarks today. I passed around a somewhat eccentric handout that has some items in it that I talk about in the speech that are explained more clearly. As Roger mentioned, I'm talking today on uh, liberty and originalism in constitutional law because I am an originalist when it comes to constitutional interpretation. And I thus agree with Justice Scalia's and Justice Thomas's methodological approach to constitutional decision making. I should, as Roger mentioned, I clerked for Justice Scalia and I deeply admire him and am grateful to him because he has been my mentor and teacher for 33 years. Nonetheless, in the 25 years since I left to teach law uh, at Northwestern University, as I've studied the Constitution and the 14th Amendment and English legal history, I've concluded that the original meaning of the American constitutional documents is much more libertarian than Justice Scalia, for example, believes. I want today, today to try to present briefly my reasons for reaching that conclusion. I want to begin by explaining what I think it means to be an originalist. I think originalism requires that one when one interprets a constitutional text, whether it be the Constitution, a statute, a contract, or a Supreme Court precedent, one must give the text one is interpreting its original public meaning. This means consulting dictionaries, grammar books, and newspapers published at the time the text, the legal text, became law. I do not believe it is appropriate for judges to consult the original intent of the legislature or convention that adopted a clause or a law, but only the original public meaning of the words of the text. Laws adopted by dead people bind us, but their unenacted intentions do not. With that in mind, I want to say a few words about provisions in the text of the Constitution that protect liberty and uh, some words about the historical background of the Constitution that that I think are relevant to its protection of liberty. It makes sense in talking about the constitutional text to talk first about the structural constitution, uh, the pre-Bill of Rights constitution, and the grants of power it makes to Congress, and then second to talk on, about restraints on congressional power and state power in the Bill of Rights and in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. I think the Constitution's primary guarantee of individual liberty comes from the fact that it sets up a complex federal republic with an elaborate system of checks and balances, which makes it hard for transient democratic majorities to take away individual liberties or property. The point is so well made by James Madison in his various Federalist papers that I think it's sufficient to just men mention Madison on this subject 
and uh, I'm, since I'm sure you all know his arguments uh, very well. The next thing that's important about the text of the Constitution, in my opinion, is that it creates explicitly a federal government of limited and enumerated powers. In a case involving the application of federal law to a U.S. citizen, the federal government therefore has to act within its enumerated powers. There are, of course, two such powers which have been read much too sweepingly since the New Deal Revolution of 1937, and I'm referring, of course, here to the Commerce Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause. If one looks as a textualist and an originalist at the original meaning of the phrase commerce among the states, it's actually fairly easy to figure out what that meaning is. The Latin roots of the word commerce, as my handout indicates, are com, which means with, and merce, which is, means in various forms buying and selling. The root merce in the Commerce Clause always appears in other English words as having an economic connotation. Consider here the English words mercantile, market, and mercenary, all of which also derive from the same Latin root merce, which appears in the Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause thus only applies to activities where there is buying and selling among the states going on. It doesn't apply to possession of items uh, or, to other, or to transactions that are voluntary and don't involve buying and selling. The other grant of national power, which is often said to be sweeping and limitless, is Congress's grant of power under the Necessary and Proper Clause. That clause empowers Congress to regulate wholly intrastate commerce and on occasion possession as a means toward the end of effectuating Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. The Necessary and Proper Clause does constitute a major grant of power to Congress, and frankly, probably 95% of all federal laws and regulations, including almost all of the federal criminal law, are based on the Necessary and Proper Clause. So the clause deserves some attention. The first big limit on congressional power under the Necessary and Proper Clause is that the clause only authorizes Congress to use means toward the end of executing some other enumerated power. Chief Justice Marshall said as much in McCulloch against Maryland, and this is an explicit requirement of the constitutional text. The second limit is that while the Necessary and Proper Clause does grant Congress the power to use new unenumerated means to make effective the other enumerated powers, this does not authorize it to use any means it chooses. First, the means Congress chooses must not be so major that they ought to have been on the federal list of enumerated powers. Two examples show the context and limits of congressional power here. I believe that Congress can, under the Necessary and Proper Clause, set up an Air Force and a space-based military defense system. Doing these things is a proportionate means toward carrying into execution Congress's power to raise an army, provide a navy, and to declare war. Congress cannot, however, set up a massive government-run single-provider health care system because, as five Supreme Court justices said in NFIB against Sibelius, the power to centrally run a sector of the economy that constitutes 17% of our GDP 
and to control people's personal health care choices and actors to doctors, access to doctors and to medicine is so large that it cannot plausibly be described as being a means to a constitutionally enumerated end. The usefulness of an Air Force to our Army and Navy is obvious and beyond dispute, but the usefulness of socialized medicine to some other enumerated power is dubious at best. Second, let's assume that a law is a means for carrying out an enumerated power and does not involve the exercise of a major power that one would expect the Constitution to have enumerated separately. In order for that law to be valid under the necessary and proper clause, the law must still be both a necessary and proper means for carrying out the enumerated power. Chief Justice Marshall famously construed the word necessary in McCulloch versus Maryland to mean convenient or useful to but he didn't say anything about what constraints the word proper puts on congressional power. Two recent Supreme Court majorities have held that a federal law that invades the sphere of state power is not a proper law. Five justices agreed as to this point in NFIB against Sebelius, and five justices so held in Justice Scalia's opinion for the court in Prince against United States a case in which Congress tried unconstitutionally to conscript state government employees into doing federal work without their being paid for it. Prince and Sibelius illustrate as current governing law that Congress cannot usurp state power under the necessary and proper clause because doing so is improper. I now want to add the point that Infringing on personal liberties and fundamental rights is also not proper, and so Congress cannot do those things either. Could Congress properly pass a national ban on the use of birth control or a national ban on the so-called offense of sodomy? I believe the answer to that question is no. Laws of this sort are quite simply not proper in an Anglo-American culture steeped in liberty. You do not need the Bill of Rights to ban such laws at the federal level, since Congress has no enumerated power to pass them in the first place. The laws I just described do not carry into execution an enumerated power, and the means used by such laws are so major that they ought to have appeared on the list of federal enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8. The means used by these laws are highly intrusive on liberty, while the Article I, Section 8N they promote is extremely attenuated at best. It may be the case that if one aggregates all the use of birth control and of sodomy in the nation per Wickard v. Filburn, there's some kind of effect on commerce, but the effect is too distant and too out of proportion to the means used for federal power to exist here. This understanding of the word proper in the Necessary and Proper Clause conforms to the etymological origins of the word as revealed in the Barnhart Dictionary. The word proper comes from Latin directly, the word proprius, which means one's own, particular, special, peculiar, of uncertain origin. The word proper in the Necessary and Proper Clause thus allows Congress to use means to accomplish an enumerated powers and so long as they're adopted or appropriate 
uh, or proportional to the purposes and circumstances uh, of the accomplishment of an enumerated powers end. The text of the Constitution also protects liberty, of course, through the Bill of Rights, the first eight amendments, and the Ninth Amendment. Um, and it uh, protects uh, it, it protect, protects liberty under the, under the Fourteenth Amendment. I think particularly through the Due Process Clause, through the Privileges or Immunities Clause. The Privileges or Immunities Clause provides that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. I think that clause is modeled on similar clauses in the Articles of Confederation and in Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution. The clause in the Articles of Confederation reads as follows, the better to secure and perpetuate mutual friendship and intercourse among the people of the different states in this union, the free inhabitants of each of these states, paupers, vagabonds, and fugitives from justice accepted, shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of free citizens in the several states. The Article 4 clause says the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. So how would an ordinary literate American have understood the Privileges or Immunities Clause in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was enacted? They would have assumed that the amendment made binding nationwide the protection that Article 4, Section 2 provided to out-of-state citizens temporarily resident in or traveling through another state. Article 4, Section 2 obligates the states to give out-of-staters the same civil rights under the common law, state statutory law, and state constitutional law as is enjoyed by in-staters. Out-of-state travelers can be deprived of the political rights to vote, run for office, or serve on a jury of the state they are temporarily traveling through. They can also be denied access to state parks, state colleges and universities, and access to rakes state oyster beds, as was famously held in Corfield against Coriel. But out-of-staters must be given the same civil rights as in-state citizens under Article 4, Section 2. And after 1868, it became unconstitutional to give a class of citizens like African Americans lesser or abridged civil rights as compared to those given to white Americans. Privileges or immunities are not natural law phenomena, but are instead created by state law. The English word privilege has two Latin roots, privé meaning private, and legis meaning law. A classic privilege is thus the right of an English nobleman to be tried by a jury of his peers. A classic immunity would be the freedom of a nobleman not to be tried by a jury of commoners. The classic text on the meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause is the passage of Justice Bushrod Washington's in Corfield against Coriel, where the justice says the inquiry is what are the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. We feel no hesitation in confining these expressions to those privileges and immunities which are in their nature fundamental, which belong of right to the citizens of all free governments, and which have at all times been enjoyed by the citizens of the several states which compose this union 
from the time of their becoming free, independent, and sovereign, which means 1776. Um, although um, I, I think that what that suggests is that rights that are deeply rooted in history and tradition that date back to 1776 are fundamental rights that are constitutionally protected. I thus agree with the Supreme Court's uh, opinion. Whole, uh, I agree with the Supreme Court's outcomes in Washington against Glucksburg and McDonald against City of Chicago, but I would have based those opinions on the Privileges or Immunities Clause, not on the Due Process Clause. In my view, there is no such thing as substantive due process. I think it is indeed, as John Hart Ely called it, an oxymoron like green pastel redness. But that is not the end of the inquiry, because I think that the Privileges or Immunities Clause does have a very libertarian original meaning that encompasses both one's federal and one's state privileges or immunities of citizenship. And uh, that's illustrated in part by some of the history I now want to discuss. At the time of the American founding and Reconstruction, there were three powerful currents of opinion about liberty that were widely being discussed. Um, first, the framers uh, thought that they were possessing, that they possessed the traditional rights of Englishmen and that they were being abused and cheated out of these rights by King George III. Second, um, the State Bills of Rights in the 1780s strongly suggest that the framers themselves were very libertarian. And third, the libertarianism that was widespread in the state constitutional law in the 1860s when the 14th Amendment was written and ratified suggests that that amendment, too, should be read through a libertarian prism. Prior to 1776, Americans were Englishmen, and they thought they were heirs to a long, centuries-long tradition of liberty that went back to Magna Carta, but also to before the year to the years before the Norman Conquest in 1066. Colonial Americans were followers of the constitutional history of England offered up by Sir Edward Cook during his struggles with the Stuart despots, King Charles I and King Charles I, King James I and King Charles I, both of whom believed in the divine right of kings. Cook and his many followers countered these claims of absolute royal power with a theory that England had an ancient constitution of liberty that dated back to the laws of King Edward the Confessor, the so-called Legis Edwardi. I will first discuss Cook's theory of the ancient constitution of liberty and then explain why it's relevant to American constitutional law. Cook thought that English, England's ancient constitution of liberty had its roots in the forests of Germany, where the uh, Roman, where, as the Roman historian Tacitus explains, the German tribes governed themselves with a remarkable degree of democracy. The Roman historian Tacitus confirms this account of the democratic libertarianism of the Saxon tribes in Germany. The author Trevor Colburn, for example, has said, quote, Tacitus's Germania enjoyed a remarkable vogue in the 18th century in colonial North America. John Adams read Tacitus frequently. Jefferson would enthusiastically tell any inquiring student to look to Tacitus as the first writer in the world without a single exception. Under the, 
this ancient constitution theory that Sir Edward Cook really developed, the Saxons brought their democratic and libertarian ways with them when they conquered England, and those rights therefore date back to time immemorial. Uh, many of the uh, Cook argued that some decisions were made by a group called the Wittenmogat, or by the Witten, or by the Folkmoots, which were uh, seen as predecessors to the House of Lords or the House of Commons. And the thesis essentially was that the last Anglo-Saxon king, Edward the Confessor, supposedly codified all these ancient Anglo-Saxon liberties in the Legis Edwardi. Um, this theory of English legal history is uh, criticized by English legal historians as being inaccurate as a matter of English legal history, but it's still very relevant to Americans because it's what Americans believed about English legal history. Americans believed Cook, followed Cook, and took to heart uh, his belief in the ancient constitution. And um, uh, I won't go over all the various events in English legal history whereby uh, the um, fight over Cook's ideas uh, was maintained, but suffice it to say that England in the 1600s went through one civil war and then a bloodless revolution in 1688. And at the end of that, Sir Edward Cook's views about the primacy of the ancient Anglo-Saxon constitution substantially prevailed. But the main relevance of the English belief in the, uh, of the colonists' belief in the ancient constitution was that those were the rights they thought they had against King George III and Parliament. The Massachusetts Bay Colony was founded in 1628 and it was settled by Puritan dissenters from the Church of England, all of whom worshipped Sir Edward Cook and hated King Charles I. During the 1630s, when there was a great migration of 20,000 Englishmen from England to Massachusetts, the migrants were all Puritan opponents of Charles I and followers of Sir Edward Cook. My own ancestors in New Haven, Connecticut, in the 1660s after the re restoration of the monarchy, helped to hide three members of the parliament that had sentenced uh, Charles I to death from English troops that were trying to capture them, and those three members of parliament were never found. As to Massachusetts continued throughout the 1600s and 1700s, to seethe with fervor for the ancient constitution. And it's not surprising that resistance to English efforts to tax Americans was strongest in Massachusetts, which had been settled by Cook's supporters and where the Boston Tea Party occurred. The British reaction to the Boston Tea Party was to announce that it was closing the port of Boston and placing the city under military rule. That led to the battles of Lexington and Concord which in turn caused the other 12 of the original North American colonies to rally behind Massachusetts's view as to the liberties of Englishmen in North America. Thomas Jefferson said that under King George III, the North American colonies had replaced the yoke of the Norman oppression with the yoke of a Hanoverian's oppression. Trevor Colburn writes that American colonists in the 1760s and 1780s presented an idealized version of an Anglo-Saxon democracy, which they usually found overturned by Norman treachery and feudalism. 
In Americanized English medieval history settled into a pattern of periodic efforts to reestablish pre-Norman liberties. John Philip Reed observes that the ancient constitution had been a central element of the pre-revolutionary debate from its beginning with the passage of the Stamp Act to its conclusion with the Declaration of Independence. Reed quotes James Otis as saying in 1764 that liberty was better understood and more fully enjoyed by our ancestors before the coming in of the first Norman tyrants than ever after, till it was found necessary for the salvation of the kingdom to combat the arbitrary and wicked proceedings of the Stuarts. I spent so much time discussing the ancient constitution because it's actually central to understanding the American Revolution and the constitution under which we now govern ourselves. Prior to 1776, um, Americans were Englishmen and they thought they had the rights of Englishmen. And they believed that uh, those rights were not the rights of a constitution that was in exile, but of a constitution which could be made real and forceful in their own day. The ancient constitution of England was challenged in many times, in 1066, in 1215 with Magna Carta, in 1641 with the English Civil War, in 1688 with the Glorious Revolution, and in 1776 with the American Revolution. And every time the ancient constitution of liberties triumphed, um, thus, the American colonists thought they were the true heirs of an English constitution of liberty and exile that went back to time immemorial and that was epitomized by Edward the Confessor, Magna Carta, the Petition of Right, and the, the Glorious Revolutions of 18, 1688, and the writings of Sir Edward Cook. So, contrary to Judge Douglas Kinsburg, I believe that the U.S. Constitution never went into exile, not even in 1937, although it has been challenged on occasion by the big government we have today. But the Constitution is our governing document, and while we should observe as a general matter stare decisis, when new big government challenges to our constitutional liberties are made, we must as a society reject them and fight for our constitutional liberties just as our ancestors did. My second point and closing point on the original libertarianism of the founder framers of the Constitution considers the distinctive way in which those framers wrote their state bills of rights. In May of 1776, George Mason wrote the first draft of the Virginia Declaration of Rights two months before Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. The first article of the draft read as follows that all men are born equally free and independent and have certain inherent natural rights of which they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity, among which are the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. George Mason's first draft was adopted in slightly altered form by the Virginia Constitutional Convention in June of 1776. In the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson rewrote the first clause of George Mason's draft to say, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thus was born the American creed of liberty. Most of the seven of the 14 state constitutions that were in effect in 1791 had uh, born free and equal clauses in the state constitution. For example, the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 began with the following words. Article 1, all men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and find that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. In fact, it turns out that uh, 59% of the American population in 1791, when the Bill of Rights was ratified, lived in states that had Lockean natural rights guarantees in their state constitutions. This is a huge supermajority of the population living at that time. So now I want to close by describing how the libertarianism of the American founding, informed by England's ancient constitution of liberty, also informed the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in July 1868. An important window into the rights it protects is provided by looking at state bills of rights. Just as the states define what is the property that the takings clause protects, so too do the state bills of rights define the fundamental liberties that the privileges or immunities clause protects. States cannot give state constitutional rights to white citizens without also giving them to African-American citizens. A state can abolish its public schools by so amending its constitution, but it cannot maintain them in a discriminatory fashion. In July 1868, 24 out of 37 states had Lockean clauses in their state bills of rights. Those states included California, Delaware, Florida, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Nevada, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Vermont, Virginia, and Washington, and Wisconsin. Lockean guarantees in state-built state constitutions generally mimicked the language of the Lockean clauses in the original state bills of rights from 1776 on. They all say, in essence, that all human beings are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and find that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. What does it mean to say in practice that the Lockean clauses are incorporated into Section 1 of the 14th Amendment? It means that Americans have a constitutional right to enjoy life, to enjoy liberty, to acquire and possess and defend property, and to seek and pursue happiness and safety. The American people remain, according to our state constitutions in the present day, committed to the locking clauses of the framing and of, the, of Reconstruction. I looked at state constitutions in 2010 because I like to do uh, number counts of things in state constitutions. 
and discovered that as of 2010, 31 out of 50 states have lock-in clauses in their state constitutions. This includes the states of Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Florida, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Maine, Massachusetts, Montana, Missouri, Nebraska, Nevada, New Mexico, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, uh, I mentioned that already, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Utah, Vermont, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. So my conclusion is that an original public meaning reading of the Constitution and of its amendments leads inexorably to many, although maybe not all, libertarian outcomes. I think the ancient Constitution that Sir Edward Cook believed had been given to the English people by Edward the Confessor had a uh, tremendous sway over colonial Americans. I think when colonial Americans wrote these Lockean clauses into half of their state constitutions in which 59% of the people lived in 1791, that those were the rights retained by the people of which the Ninth Amendment speaks of. And I think that the fact that 24 out of 37 states in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, had lock-in clauses in their state constitutions means that it's very easy to know what is the right that's deeply rooted in American history and tradition. The right that's deeply rooted in American history and tradition is the recognition that all men and women are born free and equal and have natural and inalienable rights. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Steve. Uh, let me uh, open up the question period by putting to you a question that came up right toward the end of your remarks where your uh, brief uh, in favor of liberty and limited government spoke about the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause and then referenced the Bills of Rights in state constitutions. Uh, the implication being that it incorporated those, uh, unless I've misunderstood you, that is not the ordinary reading of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which ensures that states shall not abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, not of New York or Pennsylvania, and so forth. And so did you mean to make that move directly from the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause to the state bills of rights? Or is it rather that you read the Privileges or Immunities Clause as protecting individuals from state uh, intrusion on their rights as set forth not only in the first eight amendments of the Bill of Rights, but also in the Ninth Amendment, which is understood ordinarily, at least by those of us here at the Cato Institute, as protecting our natural rights. So there are two avenues, and I'm not clear about which of the two or whether it was both yeah. that you meant to take. I think I meant that it is the former. What That strikes me as unusual. Okay. I meant to include both. Um, I think I disagree with the slaughterhouse cases with which many of you are probably familiar. 
Um, I think the dissenting opinion by Justice Field in the Slaughterhouse cases gets the Privileges or Immunities Clause exactly right. It was the main cornerstone of the 14th Amendment. The Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses were almost an afterthought. Uh, It's idiocy that the court has not reconsidered the Slaughterhouse cases, particularly because it goes on issuing decisions that would be much more justifiable under the Privileges or Immunities Clause than they are under the Due Process or Equal Protection Clauses. As I said, I don't personally believe in substantive due process, but I do believe the Privileges or Immunities Clause protects fundamental rights of Americans and Englishmen as they were understood in 1776. Um, In terms of uh, how it does that, the, article, the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 2 says that if you are traveling through another state, you are entitled to the benefit of that other state's constitutional rights while you travel through the other state. Um, I think the privilege, Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment takes all the rights in the state bills of rights and entitles citizens both in-state and out-of-state not to have their privileges or immunities abridged. Abridgement can happen in two ways. It can happen by abridging rights on a class basis. For example, the black codes, which took away rights from a class of people, free African Americans. But rights can also be abridged one person at a time, as when freedom of speech of an individual is abridged. And I think both types of abridgement are banned. Um, Although I think that rights, the rights protected are so deeply rooted in history and tradition that they go back to 1776. I think that the core right in 1776 was the recognition that all men are born free and equal, that they have certain inalienable, inalienable and natural rights, that those include the right to enjoy life and liberty to possess, acquire, and defend property, and to pursue and seek happiness and safety. On the Ninth Amendment, I think it says quite simply that notwithstanding the enumeration in the first eight amendments, the other, all other rights are retained. I think the other rights that are retained are all the other rights of Englishmen beyond the ones in the first eight amendments that would would have been understood to be recognized in uh, 1776 or at the time of the framing. So I I do think the the rights that are protected are ultimately positive law rights that if you accept Sir Edward Cook, date back to the forests of Germany. But I think it is a very capacious and broad set of rights. And let me mention to you two key English common law cases that I think illustrate how broad these rights are. Uh, Around 1600, Queen Elizabeth I, one of the most powerful monarchs ever to reign, granted one of her favorites at court the exclusive right to sell playing cards in the city of London. Uh, Another another person who wanted to sell playing cards sued, and the case of the monopolies was reported by Sir Edward Cook, and as Cook reported it, he said, the monarch has no power to give a monopoly to a single individual. Under the common law, there's a right to freely sell or buy. The monarch has no power to grant that type of monopoly. The common law creates a presumption of freedom. Second case, in 1772, four years before American independence, 
uh, a fellow named Stewart took a slave with him from Boston to London named Somerset. Somerset was held on uh, Stewart's ship in the Thames River while Stewart was doing business in London. Somerset, Stewart intended to take Somerset to Jamaica and to sell him in Jamaica. Somerset escaped. Stewart recaptured him and imprisoned him in the brig on the ship. The question, uh, a group of English abolitionists then petitioned the Court of King's Bench for a writ of habeas corpus demanding that Somerset be released because slavery was not legal in England. Lord Mansfield, one of the greatest chief justices in all of English history, ruled that slavery is so odious and so contrary to natural law that it can only be suffered to exist where positive law expressly provides for it. And so he ended by saying Somerset should go free. Somerset's case and the case of of the monopolies are two pillars of the common law, both of which show reveal the common law as understood in the 18th 18th century as well as in the 17th century as being an engine of freedom. All right. Uh, Now we'll open it up to questions from you. And in order to get as many questions in as possible, let's keep the questions short and the answers short. Uh, Fair. (laughs) Please identify yourself and any affiliation you may have. We'll start right here with Manny Klausner, and then we will go... Uh, up uh, there, Clark Neely, if you could put your hand up. Manny Klausner, Reason Foundation. That was a remarkable presentation. I was extremely impressed. You quoted one of my professors from NYU Law School at length, John Philip Reed, yeah. uh, who's 85 years old now. I'm not sure. Uh, I didn't how know he's that doing. he was still alive. I, I believe he's still alive. Um, I have uh, just a minor quick question, and that is you said at the beginning you're a Libertarian conservative. Yeah. And my, my questions are two-part. A, do you consider that a departure from where you have been in terms of your comments here today? And what's the difference between a libertarian, in your judgment, and a libertarian conservative? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, I think that probably the difference between a libertarian and a libertarian conservative is that um, I would outlaw heroin sales and um, probably allow, um, for example, a ban on consensual duels to the death, whereas if one were a true libertarian, allowing two people to contract to duel to the death might be something that would be permissible. That's the end that makes me more on the conservative side. Um, I've always been a libertarian conservative since law school, Um, I had the great pleasure in law school of being on Milton Friedman's television show, Free to Choose, along with Lee Otis, who's in the audience with us. And we were asked to identify our political philosophy on that show. I wrote Libertarian on my tag. Uh, The conservatism was acquired under the tutelage of Judge Bork and Justice Scalia and Ed Meese and many other friends in Washington. Um, My views on on constitutional change interpretation have actually not changed at all since law school. I've always believed in originalism. I've always thought that substantive due process is like green pastel redness. It just doesn't make sense to me. I've always wondered what the meaning of the privileges or immunities clause was. I said about when in Washington against Glucksburg, Chief Justice Rehnquist 
said for five justices, rights that are deeply rooted in history and tradition are the ones that are protected as a matter of substantive due process. So I thought, okay, I have a dean at my law school who's an empiricist. He wants me to count things. I'll take state constitutions in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified, and I'll count what rights are protected and how many states protect them. And I discovered that 24 out of 37 states protected these Lockean natural natural rights. Um, and it wasn't necessarily the conclusion I expected to find. I set out as a social scientist on a social scientific mission. It revealed the conclusion that liberty was widespread, uh, in, that the Lockean clauses were widespread in 1868. So then I went further and did researched state constitutions in 1791, found that seven out of 14 had lock-in clauses in 1791 when the Bill of Rights was ratified, including the Ninth Amendment. And then I figured, well, for good measure, I'll look at 2010 and see if these clauses have survived, and 31 out of 50 states, a three-fifths majority, still have them. So um, I think that my, my policy views have always been libertarian conservative. My legal philosophy has always been originalism. I took the task assigned to me by Washington against Glucksburg. I went back and counted up the rights in all the state constitutions, and this is what came out. You're seeing the problem of professorial prolixity. Uh, <laughs> Clark? Uh, thank you, Roger, and uh, wonderful talk. Thanks for that. So one of the problems with forcing people to go back and look in history and find you know, right to do the thing they want to do is that the government is kind of endlessly creative when it comes to infringing liberty. And so, you know, maybe I want to go skydiving or I want to eat some foie gras or own a pit bull. And I'm not going to find rights to do any of those things looking back through history. Uh, is it incumbent upon the government, before I am forced to identify a particular right to do a thing, is it incumbent upon the government to identify the source of its authority to regulate whatever conduct I want to engage in by identifying a legitimate and honest, not, we're not talking about rational basis review, which is a fraud and a charade, but an honest legitimate government interest that is, that is being advanced by infringing on my liberty to do whatever the thing it is I want to do? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, at the federal level, I think the federal government has the burden of showing that it is acting within its enumerated powers. 99% of the time, that means it's acting under the necessary and proper clause, so it has to show that a law that it wants to enact is, in some sense or another, proper to the carrying into execution of a constitutionally enumerated means. And if there's a ban on skydiving or a ban on skateboarding or some new behavior, just because, sky just because those behaviors were not known to people in 1776 doesn't mean the government has power to regulate them. I think they have to show it's proper today. There's a proportionality analysis before the federal government can deprive people of liberty. Um, I think the right protected that animates the enumerated powers, the Ninth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment, is the right to enjoy life and enjoy liberty. I'm not sure you can enjoy liberty if the government is constantly coming along and chipping away at it in different ways. It may be very hard to seek, pursue, and obtain happiness and safety if the government is intruding in various ways. With state cases... Uh, the state governments are presumed to have general power, 
but uh, general jurisdiction, they don't have to show an enumerated power. But I think the Privileges or Immunities Clause protects the right to enjoy life and liberty and seek and pursue and obtain happiness and safety. As to how I would apply that in concrete cases, I've come to the conclusion that I didn't originally believe that because of these Lockean clauses, Griswold against Connecticut is correctly decided. I think Lawrence against Texas is correctly decided. I signed the Cato brief in the same-sex marriage case that was decided by the Supreme Court in June. I think the right to enjoy life and liberty and to seek and pursue and obtain happiness and safety is a substantial right. I should emphasize that I... Thank you, Steve. Uh, uh, (laughs) Tim Sandifer. Tim Sandifer from Pacific Legal Foundation. Um, I'm confused by what appears to me to be a paradox in your presentation. You began by lauding the the, uh, Magna Carta. You cited um, uh, Somerset's case and Darcy versus Allen, the the case of monopolies. Um, You applauded Lord Cook, and then you said that you don't believe in substantive due process when Somerset and Darcy are substantive due process cases brought under the law of the land provision of Magna Carta, which is synonymous with our own due process clause, which was understood at the time of the framing and in 1868 as a prohibition on arbitrary deprivations of substantive freedom. So do you mean, when you say that you don't believe in substantive due process, do you mean that you find something objectionable in modern substantive due process doctrine, or do you mean that you think the, the due process clause protects only procedure and not any substantive rights at all? And if the latter, do you think, for instance, that we could try accused criminals by a coin toss or by consulting the Zodiac? No. I mean, um, due process requires trial by a jury of your peers. I think it's a, it's terrible that in 98% of all criminal cases today, Cases are plea bargained rather than being tried by a jury of our peers. I think that's a huge deprivation of liberty. Um, I I think that the Due Process Clause protects a number of different procedures. It is true that uh, the English working with the Law of the Land Clause tried to reach some substantive liberties. I think under the American Constitution, as it's written, the Privileges or Immunities Clause and the limits on enumerated power are much more plausible places than the Due Process Clause to locate them. And I think that's revealed by the fact that Chief Justice Roberts, when he dissented in the Obergefell case, didn't say anything about equal protection. He didn't say anything about privileges or immunities. He said this is a case about the Due Process Clause and uh, proceeded from there because he thinks that's an argument he can win because he can show the deprivation was made by law. The Privileges or Immunities Clause suggests an outer limitation. I do want to add one last thing, which is that uh, I have disagreed with Roe versus Wade since it was decided and continue to disagree with Roe versus Wade. So that is in contrast to my agreement with Griswold and and Lawrence v. Texas. Roe v. Wade is a very different case than Griswold. It involves quite different issues. Uh, Up here, uh, no, we have a question up here first. And if you could identify yourself, that was Clark Neely of the Institute for Justice and Tim Sandifer of the Pacific Legal Foundation. Sir? Edward Roeder of Sunshine Press. In eschewing the idea of trying to ascertain what the, our founders were thinking when they wrote stuff, preferring the written word for that, how do you... 
How do you reconcile including the uh, lock-in clause in the South Carolina state charter? So that's a, given that South Carolina was the first state to secede from the Union and specifically cited its reason for doing so, the preservation of slavery. Right. So um, when George Mason wrote the first draft of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which I read to you, some people at the Virginia Constitutional Convention in June of 1776 were very concerned that it might outlaw slavery, which it plainly did. Um, as a result, the Virginia Declaration was slightly altered to say all men, when they enter into a state of society, enjoy certain rights, among which are the right to enjoy life and liberty, etc., etc. Um, I don't see any difference that was made in the outcome as to slavery by that adjustment of words. But later on, a case reached the Virginia Supreme Court about whether the Virginia Lockean Clause outlawed slavery, and the Virginia Supreme Court held it didn't. However, many other Supreme Courts, a large number of them, outlawed slavery under their Lockean Clauses. Massachusetts outlawed slavery under its Lockean Clause. New Hampshire and Vermont outlawed outlawed slavery under their locking clause. Ohio outlawed slavery under its locking clause. So it is true that the southern states, there were southern states that had these clauses, and they tried to argue that somehow they were compatible with slavery, but the overwhelming majority of cases came out rather with slavery being abolished. I, by the way, did an article looking at 101 cases decided by state courts between 1791 and 1868, using the words of the Lockean clauses, and I discovered that overwhelmingly the use of the Lockean clauses had been to abolish slavery in places where it had previously existed. So, Sasha. Uh, Sasha Volek, Emory Law School. Um, my question is maybe a second cousin of the previous question. Mm-hmm. Um, the Somerset slave case, um, what the Somerset slave case, I think, uh, points out is that under the English common law, one big difference between that and our American system is the idea of parliamentary supremacy. So that if you, um, if you look at what rights the English had, the English did not have any absolute rights, or they did not have any rights that were safe from infringement by legislatures. So that the clear implication of the Somerset case is that if Parliament passed a pro-slavery statute, then that would control. So that leads to the question of how do you import the ancient rights of Englishmen into an American context? Do you bifurcate and say, well, what the English had were presumptive rights uh, in the absence of legislative action, and those rights we incorporate into the American context as rights which are now protected even against legislative action? Or do you say something like, maybe what they meant was there are rights of Englishmen that are, what we mean, what we mean there is the rights that are so sacred that we would never even allow them to be, um, we would never even get that far in the legislature, that's how sacred they are. Or they are rights such that if a legislature ever infringed them, then we would rise up in arms. And so related to that is with the with the slavery issue, if you're going to say that some of those rights are incorporated not through not 
into state constitutions through Lockean clauses, but um, through all of the, through the aggregate of Lockean clauses into the privileges and immunities clause, or um, you know, the, or the due process clause, or, or Ninth Amendment. Hmm? Or the Ninth Amendment. Or the, or the Ninth Amendment. Then it seems that, you know, the Somerset case, that was 1772? 1772, and I, Somerset's case is terribly important because it was four years before American independence, so it right, was binding exactly, law exactly. in the United States. And the reason why Dred Scott thought that when he was brought voluntarily with his master into the free state of Illinois, he had become a free man was because under the rule of Somerset's case, once somebody, a slave, entered a free territory, they acquired their freedom. In fact, the South was desperate at the Constitutional Convention to get a fugitive slave clause because otherwise fugitive slaves would have been free as soon as they escaped into another state. But getting to your basic point, um, I do think you're right that the liberties in England were presumptive liberties because there was a belief that the king in parliament or the queen in parliament had absolute power. And that's because England had what Polybius and Aristotle would call a mixed regime where the the, the king, the lords, and the commons representing the three great estates of society could do anything they wanted, and no judge could ever strike down an act of the king in parliament because it would be like a judge holding unconstitutional a constitutional amendment. The framers of the American constitutions put sovereignty in we the people of the United States. So the president in Congress can pass a health care law, but that doesn't mean that the courts have to uphold it. The courts have to check it against the Constitution, see if it's necessary and proper or not, and see if it conflicts with other retained rights, for example, in the Ninth Amendment. So, yes, I think agree, England, the rights are presumptive liberties. There are a lot of them, but there is this brooding possibility that Parliament could, by law, pass a bill of attainder. Parliament, by law, sentenced the Archbishop of Canterbury to death under King Charles I, and he was executed uh, for having high church ways, like too much singing in church. Um, Parliament could do all sorts of awful things. The framers of the American Constitution put sovereignty in we the people. They delegated only limited and enumerated powers to the various branches. They've limited state power both by the 14th Amendment and by state constitutions and by dividing power at the state level. So the presumptive liberties of Englishmen actually became written liberties in the United States with a natural law flavor to them. Well, yes, but it seems to me you've got to do more than give a natural law flavor to it. One of the great changes from 1774 to 1776 was this. In 1774, we made our remonstrations to the king with reference to our ancient rights as Englishmen in the parliamentary situation context. In 1776, in the Declaration, we made our case with reference to the universal rights of mankind, which we took to be the starting point of the whole political enterprise, and therefore everything flowed from that. And so... It seems to me that that's... I, I, agree, I agree with that entirely. I mean, the, at some level, the American Constitution is a novus ordo seclorum. It creates it. a new order of the ages. It has English foundations. English law is relevant to understanding it, but it is, in certain respects, a wholly new and wonderful thing that is actually spread all over the world in some form or another. At this if point. we're going to get to drink, we've got to get one last question before we uh, get to imbibe. 
Uh, Herman Rossman, and I'm unaffiliated. Uh, question, uh, is there any op opportunity for a pragmatic decision to ever to be made? Is it sinful? For a pragmatic For a pragmatic decision instead of an originalist decision. Uh, what, could you give me an example? On a constitutional decision. Pragmatic as opposed to originalist. Pragmatic as opposed to originalist. Tradition. As opposed to originalist. Um, I, I, th I think that um, if there are two readings of a situation, both of which are equally plausible, considering a pragmatic concern might be permissible as a tie-breaking matter. But I think, I think the original meaning of the text the case law interpreting the text, uh, the general emphasis both in the Constitution and in English law before on liberty is the, is the guiding principle and is the one that should govern. Uh, I think the facts here are just too hypothetical and speculative for me to be able to comment on them meaningfully. And that means it's time for a drink. Uh, so listen, let's give Steve a big round of applause.